This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is all about frequently asked questions that you and your offices, I'll say plural offices, mm-hmm. get all over uh, the Lower Mainland and into the interior and on Vancouver Island, just in case you didn't know, uh, get asked. And one, I've said this before, Blair, and I'll probably say it a bunch more times over uh, the, the next month or two or three that we do the show. I love the fact that you say there's no stupid question to ask. Mm-hmm. Yep. I love that. I think that's really important. And that just speaks to um, the respect that you get when you walk in the door uh, needing help, asking for help, even if you don't know what kind of help you need yet, but you want to tackle a debt situation and uh, your team is there to help. I love that you that that's your attitude. Yeah, that there's almost no scenario where we haven't seen it before, we haven't solved it before, and we haven't been asked the question. And, you know, our job is to take the law and make it understandable, make it accessible, help people access what they need. Very good. So uh, one of the things that we talk often about on the show Uh, which I think we can't talk enough about, are consumer proposals. It it seems like it's a brand new product out Mm -hmm. there or a brand new process for folks, but it isn't really super new. Yeah, since 2009, it's when it really started, you know, to grow a lot in popularity, but, you know, every year the numbers increase. So, you know, this past year, two-thirds of people that came to see us chose to file consumer proposals on a provincial basis. The number of people filing consumer proposals has grown every year, where bankruptcies are actually down pretty significantly in the last few years years. So a lot of people are intercepting a possible bankruptcy and turning into a consumer proposal. So in order for me to do a consumer proposal, do I have to deal with you? Not me personally, but you must deal with a trustee. Yeah, so this one's a very easy one. Um, The law that governs consumer proposals dictates that only a licensed insolvency trustee has any power at all to make a consumer proposal. So if anybody else is advertising, they can assist you with a consumer proposal. They absolutely can't. Your last step has to be with a trustee to sign those documents to get the power to get the protection that you need. Let's talk about some other frequently asked questions that you get. How long does a consumer proposal last? Is there a very, is there a set time? Yeah. So a consumer proposal can be as short as a single payment. So it could be the case, you know, someone's going to make one single payment, one lump sum to settle their debts. That can be a consumer proposal that's done, you know, in the space of a day or a week. Uh, The longest term for a proposal is five years. So for most proposals, they're structured not as a lump sum because if people had that money sitting around, they probably wouldn't be in my office. They're structured as monthly payments. So generally it's a monthly payment over a term of usually 24 to 48 months. The maximum is 60 months. Okay. And that's the the rule. That's the law. Exactly. I've got to be out of it in in the 60 months. Yeah. And there's some good policy objectives to it as well. You know, usually by the time someone's making a consumer proposal, they've been in debt a long time already. They've Mm -hmm. been struggling with this. Sometimes people hesitate to even call a trustee for help for a couple of years. So if you're saying, hey, it took you, you've been dealing with this debt for 10 years, uh, but for you to solve it, it's going to take you another 10. That's pretty demoralizing, right? So I think it's smart. The government has said,
said, you can either you can afford the proposal within five years or the proposal might not be the best thing for you. Okay. And in terms of the length of time for a bankruptcy, is that a lot different than the consumer proposal? Is it open-ended? No. In, in a bankruptcy, generally a bankruptcy is going to be over quicker. And in most cases, it's actually going to cost you less than a consumer proposal because to get the benefit of avoiding a bankruptcy, you usually have to pay a little bit more. You're paying your creditors more than they would receive if you filed for a bankruptcy. So a bankruptcy, if you've never been in bankruptcy before, there's two scenarios for how long it can last. If you're considered low income, and the way a bankruptcy works is it doesn't matter how much debt you owe. It could be a million dollars, $10 million, $10,000. It's going to be exactly the same uh, how long you're in bankruptcy and how much you have to pay. And if you're big, if you're determined to be low income, which is roughly under $2,100 a month of take-home pay as a single individual, bankruptcy is over in nine months. Okay. So it's not six or seven years, most people think. It's nine months from start to finish. If you are not low income, meaning you're earning above roughly 2100 bucks a month, bankruptcy is a year and nine months. So it's the 21 months in total inside of two years, no matter how dire the situation could be, you can be starting back to zero. That's really encouraging, too, for folks that think that it could go on forever, right? Mm-hmm. And it may feel like that, but it's actually not. Well, and, and most of the time, it, it's funny. You know, when people come in for the first consultation, I can see the weight of the world is on their shoulders. The day they're signing the bankruptcy documents, I've had people tell me they walk out, they feel like they're walking on air. Because nice. suddenly they've got a plan. They know exactly the sandbox they need to play in, what exactly they need to get done, and no one's going to surprise them. We're going to be very straightforward and forthright. No more collection calls. So sometimes it's you know weird to say, but people can be pretty happy going through a bankruptcy process. Yeah, no, I... I understand that. What about uh, Canada Revenue Agency? I owe them uh, yeah. part of that huge debt. Scary. They, they get <laughs> some of it. Yeah. And, and they're kind of relentless in terms of wanting to get their money. Oh, yeah. No, it definitely, and rightfully so. We're all taxpayers here, and we definitely want the taxman to you know, be good at collecting for those who can pay. But for those who can't pay, you know, the takeaway is that government debt has no special status. So if you file either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, whatever you owe to the government is going to be included. It's going to be dealt with. And when you get your discharge, when you finish the bankruptcy or when you finish the proposal, that government debt's going to be gone as well. What if I've done this already? What if I've already filed back for bankruptcy and, and now I'm in that situation again? Yeah, multiple bankruptcies do happen. So, you know, Part of it is, you know, modern consumer society. I have a number of people, you know, in 1980 was when they filed bankruptcy once, and now we're 2018, and, you know, there's a second time, and they're completely unrelated. You know, 1980, interest rates were 20%. It was real estate. You know, now the person is retired, and they've just gotten sick. So they can be completely unrelated circumstances. Uh, What the law says is that every Canadian has the right to access the system, and that right doesn't extinguish after a first bankruptcy. So a second bankruptcy is possible. Now, generally, we're going to do everything we can can to try to avoid it. We're going to look at a consumer proposal, look at other options. But if a second bankruptcy is necessary, the main difference is that it takes longer. So if you're low income, first time bankruptcy is nine months. For a second time, it's two years. So significantly different. If you're not low income, first time bankruptcy is just under two years. For a second time bankruptcy, it's 36 months or three years in bankruptcy. So it takes your duration to either two or three years. It results in you generally having to pay more into a bankruptcy than if it was your first time. Okay. What about, another frequently asked question for you, uh, the effects of a consumer proposal on my credit history? So let's talk about it from having a consumer proposal 
or personal bankruptcy. How does that mm-hmm. impact my credit and for how long? Yeah, everyone that comes through the door is all obviously very concerned because that's usually the price of compromising your debts is that your credit is going to take a hit. Now, not a permanent hit by any means. And, you know, even a bankruptcy people do recover from, but let's go into a bit of detail here. Sure. So from when you file a consumer proposal, all the debts that are included in the consumer proposal, they get noted on your credit report that basically a proposal has been filed. Sure. As you're going through the proposal, those debts basically stay there. And now while you're going through the proposal, you can still be rebuilding your credit. You can be putting, you know, new secured credit cards, you know, an RRSP loan. You can be putting positive stories on there. But it's after you finish the proposal, two or three years after, depending on the bureau, that's when it drops off your credit. Okay. So is that something that no one could ever see again? Like it literally drops off. Literally drops off like it never happened. Two to three years after it's paid for. Yeah. So what many people do, if they have to sign up, you know, for a four-year proposal, for example, they're working pretty hard to try to get that paid off in two and a half or three years because that's going to help them get it off their credit bureau that much quicker. Sure. Now, I spoke with a client today. He's still, I think he's three years into his proposal now, so not even close to finished. He's now getting unsolicited offers of credit on a regular basis. And it's because he listened to the counseling sessions. He got a secured credit card right away. And usually after you get a secured credit card, and this is a card where you put a deposit on it so the creditor has no no risk, after you've had one of those for a year or two, almost always you'll be able to get credit again. How about for a bankruptcy, personal bankruptcy? How am I impacted that way? Yeah, bankruptcy is more severe. So, you know, where a consumer proposal, when it drops off, it's like it never happened. From a bankruptcy, from a credit report point of view, when it drops off, it's like it never happened, but you still have to be truthful about it. If someone asks, have you ever filed for bankruptcy, even if it's not in your bureau, you have an obligation to be truthful. Okay. But the way it works is after you are discharged from bankruptcy, so for a first bankruptcy, that's either nine or 21 months in, for six years after, if somebody pulls a credit bureau, they're going to see that you filed for bankruptcy. That's quite a long time then, longer than the consumer proposal. Yeah, typically it's going to be a little bit longer. Now, it doesn't mean you're untouchable. Now, if someone looked at you before you did the proposal, you got a bunch of debt you're not probably keeping up on, are they going to look to loan you some money? Probably not. If they look at you after the proposal, you've dealt with your debt, you're honoring your obligations on a monthly basis, you're actually a much better credit risk. That's good. That's that's nice. That's nice that you're that you're being positive about financial institutions. That's yeah. the first time that you've mentioned actual names. That where they, could be true. Yeah, yeah. Normally I'm more cynical than that. Yeah, you yeah. are. Or yeah, <laughs> yeah. cynical. Let's yeah. go with that. I guess the most important piece for this process is frequently asked questions is that when people are walking in the door, um, I hear this over and over and again, over again, talking with with folks is that is that fear mm-hmm. that folks have yeah. that of how uh, how they're going to be treated how they're going to be asked very specific um, you know questions that are really delving into their finan- finances which can be really challenging for people to talk about. Yeah, the, the simplest way I could say it is, you know, we treat every client with the same respect as if it was a member of our family. So we, I wouldn't judge my brother and my sister. I would not judge any client that sits in front of me. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. On the line is Mark Fidget, who's a Vancouver-based mortgage consultant and broker. 
got over 20 years of experience. He's a member of the Verico Mortgage Network and the driver behind www.advancedequity.ca. Marks, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on, Elaine. I appreciate it. Let's talk about uh, what should someone consider when getting into a mortgage? What's the first thing you should think about if you haven't done it before? Well, one of the things is getting pre-approved. And one of the ads I see running by one of the big banks right now is how to get pre-qualified by calling a number and doing it in 60 seconds. And I think this is a big confusion here, Hmm. the term pre-approved versus pre-qualified. Yeah, because I saw that ad too, Mark, and I thought 60 seconds, how can they reasonably know very much? So I assume there's a big difference pre-approved versus pre-qualified. Well, a huge difference, Blair. And I mean, you'd be surprised to hear how many calls I receive whereby clients are super disappointed when they're told by a bank that they're pre-qualified. And really, it's just asking them a few questions and from that, determining an amount that they qualify for. And obviously, there's a lot more to the pre-approval process than that. So is it pre-qualification, does that, you know, is that worth anything? If I'm going to, to complete a transaction, I've got a pre-qualification. I, I would, you know, honestly, Blair, it's not worth the paper it's printed on. Hmm. I mean, nobody's looked at your credit. Nobody's confirmed your income. Nobody's looked at what other debts you really have. So it, there's a lot more to it. Right. So, so the bank has a lot of work to do before they get to that final yes at that point. Correct. Right. Okay, so that, that's definitely interesting, Mark. Because, again, I've seen those ads, and again, 60 seconds, what can you do? But um, if it seems too good to be true, it, it often is. Um, I guess, what are some other factors people should consider if they're, if they're looking at a, a mortgage in terms of how much mortgage to get? Because, you know, some people, they go in, whatever the bank will loan me, I'm going to take the maximum. But that's not always the smart way to come at it. How should you figure out so you don't end up with too much mortgage? Well, one of the things we do with our clients, Blair, is we work backwards. So I sit down with a client and I ask them, what their true comfort payment is. And a lot of people don't think of it that way. They're all sort of brainwashed into, what's my maximum mortgage approval? Hmm. So when they really start thinking about what their comfort level is, we work backwards. And if someone says, listen, I feel comfortable with no more than $2,000 a month, then I work backwards and it's easy. I say, okay, well, that, that corresponds to a certain mortgage amount and add that to your down payment. You have a purchase price. And you know, like I say, it's great to know your maximum mortgage, but that comfort level is really an important thing. Because that's the one that you're going to get stuck with, right? That's the one that you're going to have to deal with every month. Well, for sure. And I mean, we're in historically low interest rates. So it's, it's really something to keep in the back of your mind in terms of where can my payments go moving forward? Because it's easy to over leverage yourself. Is that true? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, there's no doubt about it. We're in a a very hot market, as you, uh, as you mentioned. And, you know, it's easy to get enticed into paying more than you can really feel comfortable paying. Yeah, Mark, I sit down with my clients quite often. We look at their their mortgage and a lot of them, you know, especially if they're over mortgage, they're on a variable rate mortgage, maybe it's 2% now. And, you know, we, we start to run through, well, if interest rates went up by a half point or even, you know, a full percentage point here, you know, that's a massive increase in the amount of interest that you've got to pay on a variable mortgage. Even a small, you know, interest rate increase is going to, to have an impact. So I encourage, you know, folks to, to really sensitize, you know, take a look at different options um, about, you know, if interest rates rise, will I still be able to afford that type of a payment. I assume that's a discussion you would have with your clients as well. Absolutely, Blair. And we kind of take it a little bit further. We sit down with them and they ask them realistically where they think mortgage rates are going to be in five years. And if someone says to me, well, realistically, I think, you know, a five-year term might be 4%. And let's say, for example, we're getting in at, you know, under 3%. 
we try to encourage them to make an increased payment mm. every year we increase it. So it goes towards principal. So it's it basically, it's, it's a way of allevi- alleviating that payment shock because, you know, I mean, let's face it, five years from now, it's pretty, I don't know about you, but if I was a betting guy, I would say the chances of rates being higher are pretty much 100%. Yeah, there's only kind of one direction they can, they can go, I assume, here, right? For sure. Now, Mark, as, as people start to go through the, the journey of, of getting qualified for a mortgage, what are the main factors a lender would, would consider? Um, and I wonder if there are some that are more surprising than, than others. I know one um, stat that surprised me to no end was that, you know, more mortgages are denied based on unpaid cell phone bills than on other factors. So, you know, the littlest bill can sometimes have the biggest biggest impact. Uh, what do people need to, need to consider when um, they're making a mortgage application? What do lenders look at? Well, you know, you've, you've mentioned something, Blair, that leads you to credit, and that's probably the most important thing and probably the first thing that lenders look at. And I think that takes us back to question number one in a bit. A pre-approval looks at your credit versus being pre-qualified doesn't. And lenders mm, really right. look at your credit. They put it under a magnifying glass. Right. You'd be, you'd be surprised uh, to hear that 80% of people have errors on their credit report, 20, 25% of which are serious enough to cause a person to be turned down for a mortgage. So wow. one of the things, Holy. yeah, I mean, it's, it's surprising, and most people don't even think about it. One of the things I encourage my clients to do is pull their own credit bureau at least once or twice a year, and you can do that for free by going to equifax.ca. Yeah, there's fascinating stuff on there. I know when I pulled mine, Mark, I was one of the the 80% that had some errors. I found addresses, I found different accounts. So, you know, it sounds like from from the stats here, odds are you will find something. Absolutely. I mean, we've had clients turn down for mortgages because they've had a a parking ticket in Vancouver that was sent to collections that they didn't even know about. And this is just one, that's just a simple thing. I mean, you'd be amazed at what you find on there. Hmm. And finding it out at the 11th hour, that's not the right time because correcting these things can take a little bit of time. So, you know, that, that could really scuttle a deal, I'm thinking potentially, right? Absolutely. And I mean, you're in the business, you know, that, that credit is so, so important. Are there some tips that you could give, uh, could give us to, Know, let's say, like boost the chances of you being approved. What can you do to improve your chances, Mark? Well, one of the things I encourage clients to do is pay down their debt as much as possible because, you know, when, when we look at someone's pre-approval, we're looking at what other debts do they have. And the more debt that they have, it kind of lo- it's like a scale. It lowers their purchasing capacity. So, you know, debt's one big thing. Keeping your credit score high is another thing, and a lot of people don't realize that they actually can do certain things to keep their credit going up. And one of the things is obviously, you know, make your payments on time. The other thing that people don't realize is credit utilization is a huge, huge thing. And what that is, is if you've got a a credit card with a limit of, say, $1,000, the credit bureau, as a computer-generated score, wants to see you keep your limits at below 30%. And most people don't realize that. They're running at maximum capacity, and each time the credit bureau checks, it reduces their score. Well, that's Mm. interesting. So you want to have multiple accounts, ideally, and use them at 30% or less. For sure, Blair, and that's a great idea. You know, if you've got one card and you've got a credit limit of $1,000 and you're into it to 800 it wouldn't be a bad idea to get another card and to split the balances because that's going to definitely increase your chances of not being penalized in terms of the, the way the credit bureau establishes scores. 
I know that uh, uh, at one point when we were looking at purchasing a house, we really looked at the idea of having a basement suite or a, a second suite as a bit of a mortgage helper. That's got to be uh, that's got to be an incentive for folks. Well, you know, absolutely, Elaine. Especially in the price ranges we're in right now. So I, I, I definitely uh, advise clients if if they're not really hitting that price range that they need to be in. One of the ways to do, you know, to sort of get higher is to look at uh, places. And we like to encourage legal suites because more lenders will look at the legal suite income versus the illegal suites, although there's tons of illegal suites out there. Yeah, no, fair enough, Mark. That was my mistake. I didn't mean to say illegal suites because, <laughs> well, no. yeah, we don't want to encourage people to get <laughs> illegal suited homes. Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's lots out there and yeah. everybody knows it and it's kind of grandfathered in, but... In terms of lenders and uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, like CMHC, they're, they're mostly looking at the income from legal suites. Absolutely. That makes sense. That makes sense to me. Now, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so, so Mark, in, implicit in the discussion we're having is, you know, clearly you're, you're an expert in the, the mortgage market. Um, for folks that aren't familiar with the benefits of working with a mortgage broker, can you give a sense of, you know, why would you work with a broker and how would you choose the right broker to work with as compared to dealing directly with the bank? Uh, my experience is that you tend to get much better results to working with a broker. Well, absolutely, Blair. And that's a great question, one I often get. And, um, People don't realize that banks make their mortgage money in three particular ways. Um, one is, as most know, and this is the most popular way, is interest rate. And obviously, the better the interest rate the bank can get you to agree to, the more money they make. But two of the ways that a lot of people don't realize banks make big money is one in, in the penalty, and the other is in the renewal. And when we talk about the penalty, people often ask me, why do banks have posted rates? Because it's almost like the sticker price on a car. Nobody ever gets it. And what people don't realize is banks have the posted rate for one particular reason, and that's to calculate their penalties. And one of the things I always tell clients is even if you take, a, say, a five-year term, most people don't expect to make changes within that five years, but life happens and things happen. And I tell you, I've seen some humongous penalties because of this. So the advantage of a mortgage broker then, Mark? Well, firstly, we're putting clients into mortgages that aren't being, they're not using posted rates to calculate the penalty. Mm-hmm. We're, we have, I mean, the fact is we have access to probably the lowest mortgage rates in the industry. And when you get to renewal time, banks are very competitive in the initial stages to try and lure you in. But when they do the renewal, one of the things they do is they send out a renewal document and it's never their best rates. But the unfortunate thing about this is 80% of people simply pick a term, pick a rate and sign it and send it back in, not even realizing that they're not being rewarded for what I would say is five years. If you're in a term of five years, five years of great business. Uh, Mark Fidget, he's uh a great guy. And if you want more information from him, access him very easily. His website is www.advancedequity.ca. He's a Vancouver-based mortgage consultant and broker, has loads of experience in this business. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks, Elaine. Thanks, Blair. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this.
You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Get a financial fresh start by calling 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. We're going to talk about debt settlement, Blair, right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to be honest, I don't have a clue what debt settlement... I mean, I know what the words mean, mm-hmm. but what does it mean in your world and in my world if I'm in debt? Well, Elaine, debt settlement, um, the concept is good in, in, pra- in, in theory. You know, the concept is that you've got a bunch of debt and you're going to get it settled for something less than the fair, you know, the fair market value of the debt, the full amount that you owe. So in theory, you would work with a debt settlement agency. They would step in the middle, try to negotiate with your creditors. And usually the way they advertise is with some very, you know, bold claims saying, well, we can reduce your debt down to, you know, 10 or 20% of the balance. We can save your credit rating. You know, we'll do everything over over the phone, a lot of the times it's something that sounds too good to be true, and quite often it actually is too good to be true. Yeah, because everything that you just said sounds very positive, like, I want to talk to mm-hmm. those people. What's the what's the, the downside or what's the negative side of dealing with a, a debt settlement agency yeah, the, the, the biggest downside, Elaine, is that you pay fees, and that, that's a given. You're going to pay fees for someone to help you, and it almost never works. It almost never solves the problem. Okay, now why is that? What, well, what do they do that? Yeah. What do they do? So or let, don't do. Well, let's let's talk exactly about that. So what happens when you sit down with someone who's running a debt settlement agency is first off, you generally don't sit down with them. You meet them over the phone or online. A lot of these companies are U.S. based, and their business model has been outlawed in the U.S. So they've set their sights on Canada for the last five years or so. So when you start to meet with them, they say to you, "Stop paying your creditors." Okay, Mastercard, Visa, whoever else it is, stop making payments to them and instead take the money that you were going to pay to them and pay it to us partly in fees, but also start to put this set aside fund, put aside some savings because what we're going to do client is you're going to save money for a year or two. And then after you haven't paid your debts for a year or two, we're going to take that savings and offer it to the people you owe money to. And we bet that they're going to take that offer. Now I'm no rocket scientist when it comes to financial stuff, but that sounds crazy (laughs) not to pay the Mm -hmm. credit card companies unless, unless you have some sort of agreement because mm-hmm. they're 19% yeah. whether you're living or dying, right? Oh, at, or, at, or dead. Yeah, yeah. Even then it can be tough. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it, Elaine, it, crazy is the right word because you've got no protection during this time. So during this time when you've went essentially silent on your creditors, they haven't went silent on you. So they're going to call you. They're going to call you from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. They might even call you at work, even though they're not supposed to. They're going to be harassing you like crazy to try to get some payment on this debt. And here's hoping that's as bad as it gets. But they can actually take the next step of taking legal action against you to force you to pay the debts. So what are the key words or the clues to know that this is a the wrong organization or the wrong company to sign up with? You know, the number one thing, Elaine, is you should never have to pay any money until you know the result that you're going to get. So if you ever have to pay an upfront fee to get help with your debts, that's a huge warning sign. You should be running the other way. Anybody that's legitimate is going to work things out beforehand and then be very transparent about any fee. So never pay an upfront fee. That's the number one thing. That's a really, that's a really good clue because... I can see I can see somebody going in the person or talking to them on the phone they say oh yeah we'll be able to do this this and this and it'll only cost you $50 mm-hmm. for this first session and then I send them my $50 yeah. and then I'm 
no better off. Yeah, and that that's completely true, Elaine. What what also is a case is you've got no recourse at the end of the day. Um, you know, especially if it's a U.S. based company. You know, good luck on getting any of your money back when they don't deliver. It's usually not an if; it's more more of a when. Um, even if it's a Canada based company, quite often these are again operating out of province. It's very difficult to find a local business in B.C. that you could go and you know knock on their door and say, "Hey, I've been treated unfairly." Most of the debt settlement companies, again, they're online, they're over the phone, they're people that you've got no means to, you know, essentially get your money back if things do go wrong. So uh, let's go back to that for a second. Are there no rules and regulations governing, as, so a U.S. company mm-hmm. online, because, so it's not bricks and mortar, they haven't set up an office as such, but they can still access you mm-hmm. through social media or whatever. Um, how, do, does British Columbia not have any rules and, and regulations about that? Yeah, and, and that's a great question. We've got some regulations. It took a long time for them to come into place. So it's only about the last year and a half there's been Holy. some protection. Yeah, it's, it's it really is the Wild West. And um, Alberta led the way years ago. So about five years ago when this started to happen and we were seeing clients getting exploited, the Alberta government basically outlawed debt settlement. Okay. Ontario government did something very similar. They forced them to register as collection agents, which now that they regulate. Um, in BC, Consumer Protection BC has started to put some oversight, but I haven't seen that it's had a, a huge effect on the market. I've still seen that people are falling prey to these advertisements, these offers, because quite often when people are looking for this type of a solution, they're feeling ashamed. You know, they're Googling these options at 11 or 12 o'clock at night. They're not looking for advice from people in their friends or family or their network that they trust. So quite often they're not even aware of any of these regulations. And until and unless somebody actually makes a complaint and gets Consumer Protection BC involved, well, they're not able to stop conduct that they don't necessarily know about. And that's a big ask. Mm-hmm. If, if you're in debt and you're needing some assistance, and you think you found some, and it's not what you wanted or expected, and now you owe them money, to then have the onus on you to complain about this, I mean, that's just adding more, more pressure and more stress and that's brutal. Oh, yeah. And for the most part, you already feel bad about your debt situation. Now you feel even worse because you feel like you've been taken and, you know, perhaps you think you should have known better. And yeah, feel well, like an idiot, yeah, right? Well, and, you know, it's it's not necessarily the case. It's, it's no. the case that there's a lot of marketing out there that can look very slick and a lot of it can look very similar to what the legitimate options are. So you really have to, you know, have your, your skeptics hat on, you know, your buyer beware hat on saying, you know, here are the key questions that I need to know. Is this somebody that's licensed and regulated within the province where I reside. If it's debt settlement, you know, in general, they're not going to be in the province where you reside. Is it somebody that's going to charge me an upfront fee? As we talked about, you should never have to pay to figure out how to solve your debt problem. Okay. So the difference between them and someone like yourself with mm-hmm. Sands and Associates, you you obviously don't operate the same way. Right. So right off the bat, so when you're dealing with a trustee, there's only about 100 trustees in all of BC, about 1,000 in Canada. So it's a very, very specialized legal professional. And the big difference is I can guarantee results, okay? By virtue of me being involved as a trustee, I can use the law to protect clients. So as soon as you start dealing with Sands and Associates or with a trustee, um, you don't have to deal with collection calls. By law, we put a stop to those. Okay. So, again, let's go back to the, to the person who's late at night and looking for some help. We, you talked about the fee up front. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a place that I can go? Is there a website or a body that I can go to to check a place out before I sign on? 
Yeah, definitely. So if you go to Industry Canada, yeah. um, they have a list of all of the licensed insolvency trustees in Canada. Okay. And the really key thing, Elaine, all you need to know out of that whole sentence is licensed insolvency trustee. So that's a new term. Um, previous to this year, uh, folks such as myself were required to call ourselves trustees in bankruptcy. And it's kind of a scary term. So the government changed the law this year okay. to call it a licensed insolvency trustee. If you put licensed insolvency trustee into Google, any professional that is an LIT is going to be qualified to help you. Every one of those trustees will give you a free consultation, will explain to you all the options that are available to you. Um, you know, we're very extensive within BC, but all across the country, there are trustees that are very, very capable. Now, it's not like you guys do this for free, but mm -hmm. I think the key is, again, what you had said earlier about uh, the warning signs. If, if somebody's asking you for money up front for their help, uh, that's something that you don't do. Mm -hmm. Sands and Associates doesn't. Yep. You Let's talk about that process. How does it work with you guys? Yeah, so any money that you ever pay to a trustee, it's all governed by law. It's governed by a tariff and everything goes into a trust account, which there's a huge amount of regulations when you're holding funds in, in trust, as I'm sure people can imagine. So if someone comes in and they need to file for bankruptcy, the amount that they have to pay back is totally driven by their income. If someone is low income, they pay very little back based on their income. Usually it's about $200 a month over a nine month period. If somebody is not low income, well, then they've got to pay more based on their income, but they don't pay any fees to the trustee. They pay fees basically to administer either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal estate. The trustee gets paid out of that and the trustee will never give you a separate bill saying for my professional advice, you know, consulting or things like that. Whatever you pay is what the law says you have to pay. Okay, let's go back to that one more time because it's mm -hmm. really important information. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a low-income earner yep. and I'm up to my neck mm -hmm. in debt, how does that... How, what kind of money am I expected to pay or, or possibly expected to pay? Yeah, so, to so get two, out of it? two scenarios, and it, it's pretty straightforward. So it's a case you know you can't pay off the full amount of the debt. So we'll, we'll knock that off. That's just not going to be possible. You're making payments you know, for the next 50 years, which isn't good for anybody. Right. So we try to think okay, could you offer a proposal on the debt? And normally for a proposal, you have to offer about, of the thir about a third of the debt back payable over a five year period. A third yeah. of the debt? Mm -hmm. Wow. So a proposal is huge, right? And most people don't know that that exists, but without going into bankruptcy, stop all the interest, write the debt down by two thirds. Can you pay off that reduced amount? If the answer is yes, well then that's what your payment would be. If it was $20,000, for example, which we see, you know, every day of the week, probably that could be reduced down to six or $7,000. And that's, and there's a very specific period of time that that gets paid off, correct? Yeah. It's a maximum of five years. It's as quick as you're able to do it. So if you're able to make extra payments, great. But if it was $6,000, you know, payable at $100 a month, month over a five-year period would be an option. So that would be for someone who's low income who yes. doesn't want to go into bankruptcy. That's one way. Um, if they're low income and they end up having to file for bankruptcy, normally it's over a nine-month period and they pay a flat fee of roughly $200 per month. Okay. So if I'm a higher income earner mm -hmm. and my debt is more than $20,000, let us say it's $50,000, how does, how does that work? You know, usually we start at about the third metric as well, and it all depends on a number of factors. Mm -hmm. You know, are there medical conditions? How many people are in the household family size? their child support payments to be made? We have to figure out what's reasonably can the household afford. Usually about a third to half is reasonable on a consumer proposal. On a bankruptcy, there's a whole other calculation that's based on you reporting your income, and I know we can go into that in, in sure. a later segment. Right, but I think that uh, what's something to pay attention to if you, if you have found yourself in this kind of situation, if the 
person that you're talking to isn't asking you the questions that Blair just talked about, uh, then that should be a huge red flag, especially being an organization, a company like Sands & Associates, that could take your debt of $20,000 and boil it down to six and have a plan. I mean, those are key things Mm -hmm. to be looking for, for for help if you're needing help and getting out of debt. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Okay, uh, it's great. It's called debt settlement, something that if you haven't learned about it, you need to. If you're thinking about ways of getting out of debt, uh, there's there's lots of good information. Uh, you can start with sands-trustee.com as the website to check your free consultation with one of the experts at Sands & Associates. Start living a debt-free life. Sands & Associates has 15 offices on the lower in the Lower Mainland and Victoria on Vancouver Island. Thanks, Blair. Thank you. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Get a financial fresh start by calling 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. We've got Kevin Monsef on the line with us from Lionsgate Law Corporation. So the purchase of a home, biggest financial transaction uh, folks will ever undertake. I'm pretty sure, unless you're buying a business, mm-hmm. of course. But it's even a larger purchase these days here on the Lower Mainland. Boy, oh boy, are you a busy guy or not? Very busy. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the summer generally busier than the winter, but um, it's always it's coming fast and furious, and um, we're we rarely get a chance to catch our breath. And the purchasers and uh, sellers of properties these days are they folks that are super knowledgeable ab- about what they're doing? Are they first timers? Is there is there a way to sort of describe them these days? Um, yes and no. I mean, all of the above, right? Um, we have many repeat clients that are buying, you know, they're buying or selling their tenth, eleventh, twelfth property, and then we get first time buyers that are buying, you know, first condo for. They're uh, young, uh, you know, postgraduate student uh, in the family. Um, we get a lot of that. We get a lot of young professionals. Basically, it runs the gamut. Um, retirees, all ages, um, all walks of life. That's, a, that's interesting. Um, are you getting, because that, that's sort of a new group of people, is it not, where people are buying properties for their children, depending on where they are in the, the work or education scheme these days? Yeah, that's right. You get a lot of parents that help out with a down payment, and they want to get their kids, you know, started out. Uh, a lot of, you know, the rent is expensive, generally. So if people can put together a down payment, the mortgage payment is relatively comparable often uh, with the rental rates. So it makes complete sense for everybody involved if they can, uh, you know, get their name down on a property now. They will find, um, I'm sure, in the next decade or two, uh, if it takes that long, that uh, it will have been worth it for them. Yeah, it's definitely been the right decision for the last, you know, five, ten years in the Lower Mainland and probably longer than that. Um, Kevin, I wonder if we, if we can talk through, you know, someone's, you know, very thrilled. They've decided to make a, a house purchase or, you know, even a house sale, and they know they've got to go through a conveyancing process. What are the key steps within a conveyancing process? 
So the first thing that always happens is, I mean, you get a realtor involved, right? Uh, very often we get people without realtors that try to do it privately, that you can run into problems that way. Very often it works without a hitch. Um, you know, often people are selling to friends or family and, and that doesn't necessarily need a realtor. Mm -hmm. But first thing, obviously, you pick a realtor, one that's reputable or, you know, that you heard about or one that you may already know. Um, they'll show you a bunch of properties or they'll list your property if you're on the selling end. Basically, you go back and forth. The two realtors will negotiate on behalf of the buyer and seller. They'll come to a agreement on the purchase price. Typically, the buyer's lawyer is the one that uh, draws up the contract. It's a standard form. There's nothing really um, complicated about it. Um, so all the transactions in BC, essentially the same type of a contract, unless the parties decide to do something different? Yeah, yeah. pretty much. That's right. Um, a lot of new developments, they have their own contracts. So it's important to read those because those are generally developer-friendly. Um, but, you know, 90, 95% of the deals that we do, everybody's using the same template. Keeping that in mind, there's obviously um, addenda that are attached to it. So they'll add a page where they'll add a bunch of conditions or, you know, if there's anything in particular with that property that needs to be dealt with in the contract, uh, those will appear um, as basically add-ons uh, to the contract. That's where your realtor comes in. They've, they, they know what they're doing. Typically, they have a bunch of stock clauses that they'll throw in depending on whether the property needs it. Like the condition of the property, the as-is, where is, different things Yeah, like that, that kind right? of thing. Um, you know, I see the same thing almost every time. You know, the, the seller warrants that the property has not been used for manufacture of any illegal substances. Um, there's a bunch of subjects that the buyer puts in to protect themselves, to bridge the gap between from when they agree on a price and when it's a binding contract. So typically those subjects would, the most important one being financing, right? So it would be subject to the buyer obtaining satisfactory financing because at the, you know, at the juncture where you're discussing prices with sellers and uh, agreeing on a, on a price, at that point, you're not ready to get your mortgage in line necessarily. Once you agree on the purchase price, then you take that contract to your mortgage broker. They'll figure out a loan that works for you. And then that's when you can remove that subject. Other subjects would be you know, things like inspections and due diligence on whether it's a strata. You want to see um, you know, the minutes of the latest meeting to see if there's any red flags, things like that. Your, your uh, realtor will always help you through that stage. Now, uh, just uh, one of the things that you talked about when you mentioned mortgage broker, is that a trend that, we're, that you're seeing more of, uh, that, that folks are dealing with mortgage brokers versus the sort of traditional uh, dealing with the bank for their mortgage? Well, when I say mortgage broker, I, I mean it in the general sense. Okay. Um, we, get, we get all of the above. We get mortgage brokers who are essentially, I guess, free agents, right, yeah. where they can, they can shop around and find you the best rate. On, at a multiple uh, number of different lenders, whether it's the big banks, the lesser known banks, you have credit unions. Uh, a lot of people get private loans to, because you know they may have an issue getting approved for the typical uh, bank loan. So they'll find alternative uh, lenders who will you know lend them maybe short term at a high interest rate to sort of get them to close the deal, and then they'll worry about it later. 
The other thing I wanted to ask you, too, uh, was you talked about uh, selling or or buying privately versus going through a realtor and and all that kind of stuff. Do you see do you see a trend there right now in the lower mainland that folks are doing this? It always irked me a little bit. I was always very concerned about it when I would see somebody selling privately. It's like, oh, I just feel like I have so much more confidence in realtors and and the professionals looking after it. But is there yeah. is there a trend going on or or not? Um, I don't know if I would call it a trend. I've we've noticed certain types of clients do that. It's generally a sophisticated client who might be transferring, you know, an investment property to a, a family friend who's mm-hmm. also an investor, that kind of thing. So they'll, you know, they might call me and say, hey, we know the price, we know the property, um, we don't want any subjects, basically. And that's when they ask the lawyer, typically, to draft the contract for them. Right. right. Um, some will probably do that. They might charge for it. Uh, some realtors might do it on the side for you, knowing that they don't need to list. They've got a buyer and a seller, so maybe they can discount the commission that way. Generally, I don't recommend it. Um, realtors are important. Uh, they cover a lot of bases that normally people wouldn't think of on their own. Um, so I would always recommend involving a realtor. If you think the realtor has almost nothing to do because you've already found your buyer or your seller, just try to negotiate a, a lesser commission out of that, but still mm-hmm. get them involved, uh, get their office involved. Yeah, some people don't realize that. Some people don't realize you can actually do that. You can negotiate a lower commission. Um, Now, just in the last few seconds that that we have here, Kevin, I'm just wondering if you can just tell me, you know, what should people consider when they're choosing a conveyancer? Choosing a conveyancer, the biggest thing I would say is pick somebody who you know is an expert. So pick somebody who knows, who does this, not necessarily exclusively, but as their main practice area. You have a lot of lawyers who will dabble in it. Um, It's not recommended. There are a lot of pitfalls that the lawyer can fall into that the client can if they're not properly advised. So I I generally wouldn't um, suggest, you know, if your neighbor is a lawyer who Mm -hmm. does, you know, personal injury, don't get him to take on your commands file. It's generally not a very expensive uh, legal fee compared to other areas of law. Find a lawyer or even a notary that does, um, you know, that does this every day. Uh, another thing, you know, word of mouth, obviously, if your realtor tells you, hey, I've used the same lawyer on the last hundred deals and there's been no big issues, obviously you can likely trust that. Find out, you know, how much they charge, find out what's included, what isn't, and then little perks that they might have, little added um, services. For example, our firm, Lionsgate Law, we are, we are mobile, we don't charge clients for that. We'll go anywhere, basically, to meet a client. That's great, Kevin. Thanks so much. We've been talking with Kevin Monsef from LionsgateLaw.com. That's the website. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. (laughs) And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.